0: Hey, it's another episode of the Eater Upsell. And this episode, like all our best episodes, is brought to you by MailChimp. Send better email, sell more stuff.
1: Hey, Greg here, and on today's episode of The Eater Upsell, How and I are going to be talking with Francis Lamb. Man, Francis Lamb has done so much stuff. He's been a part of so many cool things that I think the best way to describe who he is is probably just to read his Twitter bio. So Francis Lamb is an editor at Clarkson Potter. He's a judge on Top Chef Masters, and he's a columnist at the New York Times Magazine. And,
0: and he takes statins.
1: Statins? Wow. It's in his Twitter bio. Well, I cannot wait to chat with him, and... Uh, Yeah, man, Francis slam on the Eater Upsell. What a world.
0: Wait, Greg, before we throw to Francis, that's a a uh fancy broadcasting term, quick reminder to all of you out there in podcast listening land that you should subscribe to the Eater Upsell, like right literally this second. Just like pull your phone out of your butt pocket and hit the subscribe button and just the greatest things will come to you. This is like a chain letter. If you don't subscribe to the Eater Upsell, you will be cursed and your children will be cursed. Oh, so my
1: God. Jeez. Oh,
0: you could also give us a five-star rating on the iTunes
1: podcast store. Wait, what happens if there's no five-star rating, though? Will somebody get harmed?
0: Everybody's cursed forever, literally. Like, the entire Earth is cursed.
1: I don't, I don't want to live in that sci-fi fantasy.
0: Make sure you do not curse yourself, your children, your children's children, and so on for seven generations. And, and
1: uh, enjoy this chat with... Francis Slam, Francis Lam. Lam,
0: who takes statins.
2: Statins. Your work doesn't come out sui generis perfect. Right. And if you're interested in improvement, then you're going to have to take the edits that you don't feel like really improve the story but you can push back and you can like have a relationship and you can negotiate with your editor and be like no this is why I think that doesn't really work this way or this is why I think this works better that way you know like you can do that kind of thing yeah but I feel like you have to do that from a position of confidence and you have to do that from a position of professionalism and there are edits I take where I'm like I think that doesn't do service to the story and but like I'm not gonna fight you for it because like I'm a professional and this is your publication and like on some level you're paying you like, I'm providing a service to you, too, so, like, I have to have some customer service in me, too, you know? Um, But it wigs me out that there are, like, full-on professionals who've done this for years who just, like, don't touch my shit. Like, you never grew out of that?
0: I don't know. I'm going to make this universal sweeping statement. But I think that, like, people often become writers because they think they're correct. Like, you become a writer because you think that you see the world in a way that is particularly clear or particularly nuanced. And you then also think that you convey that in a particularly clear way in your words. And if someone steps in, you're like, what the shit? Like, you like you hired me for my clarity of vision and my clarity of expression. And, like, here you are mucking with it. Like, I'm not defending this practice.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like I, I would probably not agree that, that the blanket part of it is, like, that's why you become a writer. But, yeah, I mean, I get the idea that I'm trying to say this thing in this very particular way. And so, therefore— you know, for you to interfere with that is to change the particular way that I'm trying to say it. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know. It's not like you're solving a math problem. There's no right way to do it. So you can also appreciate, I think, if you love, if you truly love maybe not writing, like the act of writing, but writing the noun, if you truly love words, and I just don't see why you wouldn't be willing and interested in seeing what editors have to say about your work and how they would suggest you change it.
1: Yeah. I always feel like that's how I have learned the most is just by taking note of what an editor removed or changed in something, you know, like that's the thing that's made me the best, you know, improve
2: or whatever. Yeah. And I've, I've also had the real pleasure and honor of working um, really closely with um, who I thought was an amazing editor, Doc Willoughby, when, um, when I wrote for Gourmet and, you know, his style was to put almost no footprint in the story. But he would go through and be like, what is this doing? What is this doing? Why does this work? I don't understand what this is trying to do here. And basically he would point out weaknesses and flaws or just like soft parts and be like, look, I I think you can do something more here or I can do something about this or can you strengthen this? And I feel like that was a process of training. And that was the kind of thing where I never felt like, oh, stop mucking with my shit. But it was (laughs) really like it made me have to really examine every decision I made for that story. And on some – I was thinking about this recently. Like, you know, I'm pretty proud of the writing that I do. But I think back to the stories and I think, you know, maybe I was at a little bit of like a low moment too where I'm like, when's the last time I wrote something I truly loved? And I went back to a number of stories I wrote for Gourmet and I think, oh, it's not like those were the last stories I loved because, you know, Gourmet, rest in peace, <laughs> went down seven years ago. So I don't want to say the last seven years of my life have just been like, hey, man, cash check. It's just <laughs> but, <laughs> before and after Gourmet, yeah. man. Like no, but honestly, but, no, but I do think that um, there was something to the, ed- to the editing process of those stories in particular that really made me do work that Stands a test of time in my mind. Like I don't know how other people feel, but in my head and in my heart, I feel like oh, the some of those stories are there are really among my favorites, um, and you know that was ten goddamn years ago.
0: Well, I think that's a really good moment for us to introduce you to the people who are listening and chose not to read the name of the episode of this podcast. <laughs> Why the fuck would
2: you be listening yeah. <laughs>
0: if you're playing Russian roulette with your... Uh... Like, whose I don't expect more than 17 people to listen to this, and if you're the 18th, who are you? We're in the beautiful Eater Upsell Studios with Francis Lamb, editor-at-large at Clarkson Potter, which is one of the great cookbook publishers of our time, and also a columnist for the New York Times Magazine. And also, like, a lot of other things. Reality TV judge.
2: Yeah. Husband, dad, mom, wallflower. I don't know. I'm trying to do my bad impression of that, like, like Rob Delaney book title. (laughs) That was such a good title for that book. It was, like, turban. Warrior goddess. Cabbage. Yeah.
0: You're just a lot of nouns with periods after
1: them. (laughs) You know, not to give you uh,
0: too much praise just at the outset
1: here, but I would say for anyone who does not know... Francis's work, I'd say that he's behind some of the most exciting cookbooks that are hitting the shelves these days in the last few years. By orders of magnitude. Yeah.
0: Thank you.
1: And they're all different. Like they're all sort of, they all sort of have their own thing about them. When I, you know, when I learn that you've worked on them, I'm always like, of course, that's. That
2: seems to be the hallmark then, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's not like the other shit that he does. (laughs) Those crap He can't keep his head together to do two things that look like one another.
0: Well, it's super interesting to talk to you about writing and especially to talk about writing in the context of the writer-editor relationship because you are both a writer and an editor, like contractually for different (laughs) people. It's It's a weird duality to live within, I would imagine, to like be assessing other people's writing and then just like sitting back and taking it while other people assess yours.
2: You know it's funny because um, well, first of all, I think we just lost all of the listeners because who
0: cares about this? But, oh, they care. Uh, they totally care. Okay, you all care. We're gonna get to the dick jokes. We're gonna make just you care. Stick we're gonna make you care.
2: Please care. You know it's funny you say that because um, people in both worlds have have said something along those lines to me, and I've never really felt like they were that. I'm not gonna say they were not different because obviously they're different, but I never felt like there was such a divide between the world of the editor and the world of the writer. And I think it's because I approach both or approach parts of both jobs really from the same way. I think I approach them both from the position of someone who loves words and loves stories and wants to look at what's on the page or, you know, frankly, what's on the screen um, and sort of do it as much as possible without too much ego. And I try to do that as a writer, as we were talking about when, when, I'm, when I'm receiving an edit, edits that I love, edits that I know have made the story better, edits that I feel like, you know, I, I would want to push back on or whatever. I always try to look at the edit without a sense of ego. And I try to be objective in terms of, OK, what is this doing to that sentence? What is this doing to that story? And I think the process of doing that as a writer—and I've been a writer much longer than I've been an editor— really kind of prep my brain to be able to read other people's work that way and it's it's harder because there's sort of a reverse ego thing because there are some pieces work that come in and I feel like I don't know this is work for me but I respect this person I respect what they do so I kind of feel like maybe it's just over my head and that's okay <laughs> you know like or um, or there's also a sense of as an editor, so I was talking before about the editor I really love working with who like really tried to not touch the story and just made me work on it over and over and over again I have a strong like I feel like that person made me grow up both as a writer and as an editor and I have a strong sense that when I'm editing someone I never ever ever want what they write to end up sounding more like me and less like them and um So there are times when I'll let things slide or I'll let things go that other people will read like, why the hell did you not like, there's no verb in that sentence. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, but I kind of felt like I kind of felt them in it, you know, like maybe I don't mean to get like that sort of like crystal woo woo over, but I just kind of felt like, oh, I can sort of hear them saying that. And so therefore, like, I think that's them. And I think the right choice for me as an editor is to let that voice shine.
0: You know what I mean? In cookbooks. I would imagine that's sort of a uniquely important thing to do, especially in the kinds of cookbooks that you do, which are not like forty-seven easy weeknight crockpot recipes where like the author doesn't matter. You do these very kind of chef. Although I am and rest- working
2: on a crockpot cookbook. But not <laughs> the <entirely>. but it's not <laughs> But
0: it's not like a bargain bin, like you know, like just sort of an aggregation of Pinterest. recipes Sure, they're kind like of thing. voice like,
2: driven. They're, they're personality driven. It's driven by the author. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. So
0: well, no, I mean, that's that's exactly what I was kind of gonna get at was that um, as. The internet has become just an endless source of infinite recipes. You have to buy a cookbook for a reason beyond just I need a recipe for crockpot chicken.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that is ve- you nailed it. I think that's exactly how I think about um, books when I'm acquiring them because I feel like look, I'm not going to say the cookbook purely as a collection of recipes is dead. I think that's I think that's really overstating it, but I think the cookbook purely as a collection of recipes is having less, has less and less of a reason to exist as, hey, it's Thursday or hell, it's even Saturday and I've got people coming over, you know, like those are the two classic kind of like scenarios. Like I need dinner on the table in 30 minutes or I want to spend all day and cook and I want to impress people. Um, But hey, if all you want to do is like, I want to make something that's amazing, it's going to blow your head off and it's going to be with like Alaskan king salmon, like you got Google for that. Like, you don't need to go to your book, even if you bought the book, which already, like, you know, frankly, like, that's all we hope for. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, you know, you're not going to, like, you don't need to walk to your bookshelf and, like, find the right book you were thinking of and pull it down to the shelf and, like, flip through it, get to the end. Blah, 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 blah. You know, like, you got Google for that. So the way I approach cookbooks or, or you know, the kind of cookbooks I want to work on and thinking about uh, what books do I want to acquire, it's what is this book? You know, the book has to be a great book, and that can mean any number of things. It, you know, it doesn't mean, like, I'm going to, you know, buy a novel and call it a cookbook, but the cookbooks I've worked on, the very first cookbook that I that I acquired that came out, it wasn't the first book I've acquired, but just, like, for scheduling reasons, was Alex Tupac and Jordan Rothman's Tacos, Recipes and Provocations. Huge book. I and, mean, people uh, loved it. Best subtitle ever. Thank you.
0: Recipes and Provocations. Thank you very I understand much. you had something to do with that.
2: Uh, no comment. Um, <laughs> but I love that book because of the provocations part of it. Like, the book was a, a super-duper collection of really smart, interesting, delicious recipes. Like, that was—you know, that had the core, right? But all around it was this series of questions and essays and narratives that kind of wove together to ask the world, why is it that we value certain ethnic cuisines, like French cuisine and Italian cuisine— in, a, in this high way, and we don't necessarily value other cuisines like Mexican food in the same way, to the point where we will literally pay more for the same dish if it's in a French restaurant than we will if it's in a Mexican restaurant. Um, and so I thought, that's a great book. Like, that book asks a vital question, and it asks it in, you know, 12 different ways, It asks it in certain stories. It asks it in certain essays, in certain headnotes, and it asks it in certain recipes. But you can approach it as that kind of book. You can approach it as a great read just simply because it's really, really, really well-written. Or you can approach it as, hey, no, I really just want to make that killer kale and chicken taco or whatever it was. Um, So that's kind of how I approach the books. And so that being my um, standard means that the, the books I work on can look very, very, very different because it's really a matter of like how fully formed are they as their own thing. So I have two books, um, one that came out earlier this summer and one's coming out later this summer. On some level, they couldn't be more different, but I love them. I, I love them so deeply. One is Tyler Cord's Super Upsetting Cookbook About Sandwiches.
0: Which is the actual title of the cookbook. Which is not like actual... you describing <laughs> the book.
2: <laughs> the title is, in fact, A Super Upsetting Cookbook About Sandwiches. Um, and it is Hilarious! It's so good.
0: It, it is. It's truly, so good.
2: I think it will go down as the funniest cookbook written in my lifetime. Which I is sh- not saying that much, <laughs> but really it's saying a lot because it's freaking hilarious. Um, but then the other book, uh, the second funniest, is Chrissy Teigen's cravings,
0: which you also works on. Yeah. <laughs> so like- <laughs> look at this. You see,
2: I'm literally beating my chest right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, the, but that book is awesome because it was. It's so Tyler, if you've ever met or spent five minutes with Tyler Cord, he will tell you four different stories and make you laugh six times. Like he's just, and he's like, and like truly with like the most open hearted spirit of, like he's this, he's one of these people who's like super, super funny. And a lot of his humor is like really dark and weird and, and screwy, but he's never the kind of person I feel whose humor is about making other people feel bad about something. You know he has a very kind soul, and so he has a very kind sense of humor. The only person he makes feel bad about is himself constantly. He he brings you in, yeah, and he's like deeply fucked up. So like, but he's able to laugh at how deeply fucked up he is all the time. Um, and so like, I felt like that 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 book was like such this beautiful like ball of this like weird personality. So as someone
1: who knows pretty much next to nothing about how cookbooks are edited and produced and made, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so how does one of these books start? Does it start as a proposal that lands on your desk? Does it start as you reach out to someone?
2: Yeah, it can, it can start any number of ways. I think the traditional way is, you know, you, you as a writer, as an author, probably working with an agent, almost certainly working with an agent will produce a proposal. It lands on an editor's desk. Um, we can go deep in the rabbit hole of how this works and I don't think that's super interesting necessarily. Um, and you know, and maybe there's a bidding war for it, or several houses are, in interest, are interested, and so on and so forth. And so it's like it's sort of transactional uh, on 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 that level. Um, I mean, it's literally transactional because like you pay money for it. But <laughs> but yeah, b- books can start any number of ways. There have been books, um, I tacos for instance, and I had no doubt that Alex would write a book eventually at some point. But I emailed him before I started my job. Like I'd been hired and it was like, you know, a month or two before I was going to start. And I emailed him in that time and be like, I don't know when it's going to be, but I want you to write a book and I want to be the one working on it. Um, and so, yeah, there is some level of trying to be proactive and trying to be, and to help someone find a vision that they're going to really be invested in and they're going to really love working on. Um, from there, it really depends on so much of how your cookbook comes to be. Certainly depends on you, the author, but also really depends on the house, the publishing house, and really depends on the editor. Um, and by that, I mean the degree to which it's a product of you going away and coming back with a manuscript and with photos, and we just like basically put it to a press on one extreme to it really being. A collaboration, a product of sometimes daily work, where I'm talking to you, I'm working with you. We're like figuring out what the order of things should be. We're figuring out what the recipe list should be. We're figuring out the stories you want to tell, and and then certainly we're we're going to work on the language when we have the language in front of us. Uh, Tyler Cord's book is a great example of that, where you know that book was always going to be as like amazing and weird as special as it was, but in the particular form of weirdness it took was so much a result of like us just cracking each other up when we were sending pieces of the manuscript back and forth and we were like commenting on stuff to get to one another. And at some point he was like, dude, will you just like, can I put your name on the cover of this book? And like, we'll just like print all the comments you're writing back to me. <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, no, do not put my name on the cover of
0: the book that's really weird. Though he does talk to you in the book, which I think is hysterical. Yeah, totally. Like, and, and it's such a throwback to like what I think of as like a very old school form of like meta humor where like... There in the headnotes of a couple of different recipes, he'll have like these sort of parenthetical asides that are like "shut up, Francis," or like you know he'll just be like, "I know what you're thinking, Francis," or like, and it's it, it it's great. Like it it really pulls back the curtain on this like I don't know the the like. I can only think of really like doofusy words, like like the like living dynamic process. No, of that's creating totally this what book. it was
2: because like, we were having such a good time. I was having such a good time reading what he was writing, and I was it was cracking me up. And I would say stuff to him, and he would and he would be cracking up. That eventually we were like, maybe we should put this. Like maybe this should be part of the book. And we're like, sure, why not? And I was like, uh, I guess there is no rule against doing that. Sure, why not? And so there you go. And all of a sudden, like. My like my notes to him were like, dude, you can't say that are now in the book, you know, <laughs>
0: which is so great. And it, it, there is some Latin word for this rhetorical device, I'm right? Sure, of like yeah. calling attention to the thing by saying, like, we're not going to call attention to this. But like it's in it and it does create like a voice that is not a voice that you're used to hearing in cookbooks. Right.
2: Yeah. I would never say that we, uh, you know, we were trying to be, you know, we were trying to play with the form. You know, it, it wasn't It wasn't really a matter of like, oh, let's be innovative about this. It was like, what is cracking us up right now? And maybe someone else will think it's funny.
0: Yeah. You take a very, very different um, emotional tone with the writing that you do for The Times, where you um, have this it's really... It's not funny. It's not funny. It is often the opposite of funny.
2: It breaks my heart that it's not funny, but sorry, go on.
0: Well, I'm sure there's room for humor in it. But anyway, but but it, it, you you have this at this point fairly long running column, right? A couple of years now,
2: almost two years. Yeah, almost two full years.
0: Where you cook with immigrants mm-hmm. in their home kitchens and talk about the, their culinary origins and how they've sort of adapted to life in New York, mm-hmm. and it's I think one of the most consistently bringing me to the edge of tears pieces of writing that appears in that magazine. Which thanks for that, motherfucker. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but how do you, how do you get into the headspace to do that and to tell that kind of story?
2: Uh, you know, for me, sometimes the, these columns don't always feel like they're coming out of me supernaturally part of it is cuz like it's a more structured form of writing than i than i've done it for almost 2 years now so i feel like my brain has gotten better about it but um, it's a more structured form of writing than i'd sort of traditionally done you know it's a column and there're like certain expectations of the column you have to introduce the characters you have to introduce the dish the story has to come back around to the dish the the magazine was very clear in like wanting me to write about communities rather than just specific people obviously the two are related and obviously one can sort of speak to the issues of a larger community in a way, yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, but there were very definite things that, that that like almost like things you have to check off and get it all done in seven 800 words or whatever. So um, the degree to which it's sort of programmed that way means that my brain sort of approaches it as like oh, – in a more sort of workman-like fashion. So when I'm writing these stories, they don't always feel like they're coming out of me in this sort of, like, beautiful, flowing way that just feels like I'm at one with the universe and at one with the story. At the same time, I have said for a long time, and I really mean this, that as a writer, I feel like my greatest calling is to help tell the stories of invisible people, of people who otherwise wouldn't have their stories told. And... Part of that means that those people have given me and entrusted me with their story. And whether they felt like it was a big deal or not, and probably most of them don't, I feel like it's a big deal. And I feel like it's a big deal for me to tell that story the best and most honest way I can.
1: Sounds like kind of tying back into what you were talking earlier about about editing, kind of taking yourself out of it a little
2: bit. Yeah. Um, Like, I'm always aware that I'm writing this. You know, I don't feel like I'm channeling people because I think that's especially for the for the columns because i i I don't spend that much time with these people. You know, I you know, usually it's an afternoon. It's a day. maybe it's a couple days. but i don't I'd never say that I walk away from the stories I'm writing for The Times Magazine and feel like I really know the subject. Um, more than anything, I feel like they've given some small piece of their time and some small piece of their life to me, and so I need to, like, take that and respect it and hold it, right? And so I, I want to put it out there. And I also feel like, look, the thing with the 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 thing with the beat is I'm writing about immigrants. I'm writing about immigrants to the United States. I'm the child of immigrants. I feel like, um, which is not the same thing at all, not the same thing at all. I feel like I have a real advantage to... The incredible sacrifices you make as a person when you're an immigrant, the degree to which you left everything and everyone that you knew, you left like your whole way of like knowing how to act and behave and be in the world that made sense to you to come to a place probably because you want to make a better life for your kids. Where, Where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, my parents are from Hong Kong and I look at the, the life my parents live. And like, I think they're happy. I think they're satisfied. I think they're like, they have three kids. Their kids have grown up. You know, we're starting to have kids now. Like we have, like they're pleased, you know, they're pleased, but I can't help but remember the moment. When I was talking to a dear friend of mine who grew up in Pennsylvania, whose family has been on the same piece of land for generations, it was a farm. They come back to it every year. She has this really wonderful tradition of like they all go back during Christmas time to like harvest animals and like put them in the freezer and all that stuff. Is this a New Yorker? No, uh, 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 no. She lives in uh, Cleveland. Um, and she grew up in uh, in uh, she grew up in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, and. You know, she's not romanticizing. She it. is just our lives. A lot of us have left. You know, the farm is in a tough way. You know, like all that stuff. But they feel such a strong connection to their place and that holds that family and holds those people together in such an intense way. And when she told me that story, I was almost in tears. I'm like, that's such a beautiful tradition. It's so incredible. I love how much you love it. And it made me realize how much my parents not only never had that, but threw that away so that they could come and do something for me and do something for my brothers. And the fact that we're in a moment in our society right now where we're talking about how immigrants are like the scourge of our country and they're ruining our country and we're going to make our country great again by getting rid of them, it's just so opposite to what i think the promise of america is it is absolutely the opposite of what i think america is all about because i look at my parents whose english is accented and who frankly do not even refer to themselves as americans not as a political thing but just because in their head like no we're chinese people and americans are white And like in their head that's how that works right like um it's not even like a, a grand statement of, of, of identity or whatever and I think, no, that's what makes America great, that my parents could come here and maybe they don't even speak the language as well as anyone or whatever, but they can make that life because that was the promise of this country. That's what this country promises the world. And that I could be raised here and that I could have a place in this society. That's what makes America great. And so having the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility of writing about immigrants every month through their food is something I take so, so, so personally and so, so, so seriously.
0: I was kind of queuing up a question while you were speaking a few minutes ago that I was thinking might be like weirdly confrontational. And then as you kept talking, I was sort of revising it in my head. And the question I was going to ask was, why do you think that so many stories that are written about immigrants and particularly immigrant cuisine stories that are told or written um, are tearjerkers? Like, why are so many immigrant stories difficult or sad? And um, as you were talking, I was thinking more about it, and and uh, I think it you 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 preempted it. I mean, you answered it, which is that you when you move. To the United States, I think in particular, you're you're doing it for a reason. You're either giving something very big up or you are running away from something that is very terrible. And there is, even if you're very happy, even if your family is very happy, even if your life here is fantastic, like that is a huge thing that I think so many Americans who are already here, Americans who are born here, Americans who might have that farm or that strong sense of peace of land, like have never had occasion to complicate or have never had occasion to contemplate the hugeness of, the vastness sure. of leaving your home.
2: Sure. I mean, look, and you know, and it happens here too in, in a way where I don't think people really – it's one of those things where people, you know, this is the classic cliche, you don't know what you have until it's gone, right? And I remember after Hurricane Katrina, and I have a really – Afterwards, I had, you know, developed a real strong um, love for and, and relationship with the Gulf Coast because I ended up spending time there. But even before I'd ever set foot in Louisiana, before I'd ever set foot in Mississippi, anywhere in the Gulf Coast, really, um, I remember after Hurricane Katrina, there were all these voices, particularly among, like, you know, elected officials and political leaders saying, well, it was a great cleansing you know, it was like we got rid of all those people and, you know, on the on the slightly less obviously offensive side, you had people who were saying, well, why do they need to live there? They don't need to live there. Like, why would you want to live there? Why would you want to live in these like, you know, slums or why would you want to live in these, if nothing else, you, you know, if you take even all the, if you take all that obvious sort of like racial uh, baggage away from that. There were people who were saying, why do you want to live in a place that's, you know, below sea level where it's going to flood? You know, even every few years or every 10 years or whatever, why would you want to live there?
0: And it's not about want.
2: It's not about want. It's not about want. It's about the fact that that's where you live and that's where your family lives and that's where your people live. And you need your people. It's not about want. Thank you. It's not about like, I just want to go back there. So, you know, give me money so I can go back there. No one. Is thinking like that.
0: No one is like, I just, I love the thrill of a house that could flood any minute. Yeah. Like, I just find it really exciting.
1: I love the unexpected. Yeah. (laughs) That's why I live there,
0: actually. It's dangerous and it's really exciting to me. It's like, no, man, like, (laughs) you live there because that's where you afford to live or you live there because that's where you are zoned to live or you live there because that's where you were born and that's where the people you love are and that's where the, the, you know, businesses that will hire you are. And
2: And probably it's some combination of all those three. Yeah. Right. Like, um, yeah. So I just have this like, I think people who have never been forcibly removed from where they live or never had to make the choice, make the choice to sacrifice where they live. It's hard to understand how important those things are. Um, I can see where it's hard to empathize with people because it's such a different, a totally unimaginable idea. But. You know, empathy is something we shall work on.
0: And your your column um, speaks to a, it. It participates in what I think is sort of one of the the grand tropes of trying to make that a more understood thing, which is connection through food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm saying that sort of partially in scare quotes because I think, like, <laughs> you know, the whole idea of like, oh, like, let's come together over like a shared love of stewed chicken and rice. <laughs> Is such a cliche, mm-hmm. but it's also so true.
2: Food brings people together. No, I think it's true, and it's funny because I, um, I spent a lot more time in the last few years than I ever would have imagined, like actively working against that cliche of how food brings people together. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, at the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium, which I was, I watched this you were, happen. You were, you were, I was part a, of it. A wonderful part yeah. of. Um, I was asked to do a presentation. Uh, it was originally about like food and shame, and then it turned into a bigger thing where it was about many different ways that food can be used not to bring people together, but to drive people further apart. Um, and so I ended up doing this thing where I asked a bunch of people, really, really, really amazing people, to again, share with me their stories of a moment in their life where something about food just melt them made them feel some kind of way, you know? Um, and so we got this like very different stories from very different people from very different backgrounds and some of whom had like really powerful stories of just them feeling out of place because of the food they ate in a place where like no one else was eating that food. Or in one case I remember this unreal story of a of a Japanese American woman who was like doing research on her family and the internment camp that they were sent to in World War II in California and her like discovering the menus from that camp and seeing the foods that they were being served day in and day out. And at first she was like, oh, that doesn't sound that bad. And then she realized, oh, everyone in this camp is Japanese and all they're being fed is non-Japanese food. And she realized that food is a weapon, right? Like, that people have weaponized the menu to make these people remember every single day that you are not allowed to have the food that you think you want to have. Um, anyway, uh, so I've been thinking a lot about this idea of how, you know, yes, we want in food writing in particular, we want to have this like you know, this cliche of food brings people together and like that animates so much of the work in food media and all that stuff. And I think that's a great thing. I think that's actually a really, really, really powerful thing. It's a great thing, but I think what we need to remember is anything that is powerful is in some sense value neutral, right? And so, or it's it's not directional inherently. And so anything that's powerful in a positive way can be used to be powerful in a negative way. And in the end, I come back around to doing the work I do as a writer and telling these stories. I think, um re-energized maybe, or at least having sort of gone through the gauntlet of like, <laughs> okay, it's not inherent that telling a story about someone and what they eat is going to make someone else feel any kind of empathy for them. It's not. It might be like, no, what do you eat is disgusting. And therefore, like, I find you even more disgusting than I did before. Um, I don't, I don't, f- and so I just think it's always important to be aware of the power of what you're doing or the potential power of what you're doing and how you're doing it.
0: Quick break from our conversation with Francis to check in with the presenter of our episode, MailChimp, an email marketing company with a logo of a smiling monkey wearing a blue hat. That's pretty cool. So is MailChimp. Send better email, sell more stuff. Okay, back to Francis.
1: So while we still have you in the studio, there's something I'm curious to talk with you about, which is that you've, um, you know, you've been a food writer for a while now. You've definitely started in a more print-oriented, you know, food media and traversed all the different changes and are doing great things now. And I'm just kind of curious over your career, you know, what do you think has changed in terms of um, storytelling, stories being told versus when you started and now? Do you think that how things have trended, you know, with much more um, kind of online stuff. Do you think that that has opened things up, or do you think that you know there are still s- still some problems? Or, or
2: I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, I think technology you know, the, going into the technologically, I think it's a it's a sort of bigger ball of wax than I know how to handle. Yeah. Um, I'm, I will say this though, I don't feel that old, <laughs> but. I wrote my first story for the Financial Times while I was still in culinary school in 2003, which is 13 years ago. And that story was about being in culinary school. It was about, like, holy shit, did you know that when you're in culinary school, this is what happens? And... uh, It came out of emails I was writing to friends and family when I first started the program. like, oh, my God, I just learned how to fillet a fish. And did you know there are only three ways to fillet a fish? And if you learn all three ways to fillet a fish, you can fillet any fish in the ocean. Oh, my God, holy shit. You know, I was, like, writing these, like, super excited emails to friends and family. And they eventually, like, landed on the desk of an editor who was like, wow, this seems kind of fun. Like, maybe he'd want to do something for us. And she gave me a call. And I was like, oh, my God. So I read that story for her. And... I realized I was thinking about this recently actually. I'm like and that was my break. Right? That was my break. It was total dumb luck. Someone forwarded these emails to my editor who like gave me a call and I was like, "Oh my god, this is unreal." I realized now that you could never run that story because what could be a more boring story in 2016 than Okay, so that story ran because here, here was the tension, right? It was the story was like, oh, here's this guy, he's in culinary school, he's got these funny stories to tell by culinary school, but really, what the story was about, right, was the fact that can you believe that there are people out there? Because I, I came from another career, not a long one. I was still pretty young; I was 25. But what was the other career? I worked in nonprofits. I worked as a grant uh, grant writer and fundraiser in nonprofits. But I think the fundamental tension of that story was: can you believe that there are people who like? put away their career and go to a place where all you do is talk about food all day long yeah, right exactly. Like like no, there was a novelty there that <laughs> was the novelty right and that was the the tension of that was the novelty and now in like 2016 like no one has jobs anymore because all everyone does is like quit their job to go to culinary school you know it's <laughs> like there it, they, that tension doesn't exist anymore and like oh that's how far we've come in, as a food culture that's really made its way into the center of American pop culture, right? Like, when I first moved to New York in 1999, all I wanted to do was go to bars with my friends and go see shows. Like, we'd go, like, meet up at a bar after work, and then we'd go, like, you know, grab a slice of pizza, and then we'd go to a show. We'd go see a band. We'd go to the Mercury Lounge. We'd go to Bower power whatever. Like, that's all we wanted to do. And I'm a lot older now, so, like, I don't really know what 23-year-olds you know, are doing when they show up in New York, but I I was at, like, I went on a date night with my wife uh, on Friday night. We went to Batard, wonderful restaurant, high-end restaurant, and I don't know how old they were, but I think there was a table of six 23-year-olds next to me, and they were talking about the meal, and they were talking about the other restaurants they were going to, and and I was like, oh, wow, like that's not what I would have done at that age 15 years ago, 15, yeah, 15-ish years ago. Um, and so when you ask what is it – What what's changed about storytelling in the food world? I think what's changed is you have a fundamentally different perspective you're approaching food stories from now. You're approaching food stories now from a place of, oh, yeah, everyone's heard that. Everyone knows about that. So how do you write a story that people feel like is still a discovery, right? In some ways, it was easier for me to write at that time in 2003. Again, not that long ago to me. I mean, I'm sure to a 23-year-old, that seemed, that's forever ago because you were still in grade school. But um, at that time, there was so much that you could just write from purely as a matter of, holy cow, have you ever heard of this? And holy cow, have you ever heard of this is a really, really powerful way of telling a story. Especially because if your reader hasn't heard of it. I e- mean Exactly. And like even at the time, I remember hearing some critiques from people who like have spent like careers in food and being like, what really annoys me about today is like I'm glad people are more excited about food now, but like every writer who writes a story thinks that they're the first person to discover something. Which Yeah. You know, yeah.
0: I mean, Greg and I both get pitches from freelancers and yeah.
2: Yeah. Like, yeah. And that was going on 15 years ago and that was going on 30 years ago, you know, right. whatever. But it's, you know, a little more irritating when you, now you've spent 30 years doing that thing. so I'm like, oh, my God, did you know? It's like, yeah, new. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> you know? But it, it, there's something about like how like, you know, the ancient Greeks got to like name the stars, right? Like yeah, no one yeah, had yeah. like named the stars yet. And they were like, guys, check it out I mean I'm sure some other culture beat them to it by thousands of years but like you know like you got to do that you got to get in at the point where you could still just point to reality and the story was like this is this exists like this thing that is everywhere exists and now pointing to reality within the food world is either really old hat or like you've got to like dig really fucking deep to get to the reality that nobody's looked at yet
2: yeah I think that's exactly it I think that's 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 where we come to when we talk about, like, oh, how has storytelling changed uh, in, in my head. Either you dig really deep or you're, like, really smart and inventive in, like, thinking about, like, what's the way to tell the same story but from a different way. You know, and, you know or you take a story that everyone thinks they already know and you break it open and you take it into weird places where they never thought they would – would never thought it would go. Like, one of my favorite, favorite writers is Burke Builder writes for The New Yorker, and one of my favorite, probably my favorite single piece of food writing um, is a story he wrote called The Egg Men. It was for The New Yorker Food Issue, at this point probably like seven or eight years ago, and it was, it's a story about Las Vegas breakfast cooks already you're, you're like, oh cool. I'm like, down. Yeah. Like, I want to yeah. hear about it's that. A, like, an, what's it's that an like?
1: interesting world already. There's a hook. Here.
2: Yeah, right. So like he he was, it was great because it's already started from a place where like, ooh, ooh yeah, yeah. Like I never would have thought about those people, but like the the moment you mentioned, it, I'm like, oh yeah. Tell me what it's like to like flip eggs for a thousand drunken people at a time, you know? And it starts from there, and it goes into this like larger history of like how Las Vegas was built on cheap food. And then it goes into this thing. If like at some point it goes, he talks to like like a neuroscientist to talk about like what the timer in their heads are to like make them remember, like, I've got to flip that pan, even though I've turned around this other thing. Oh, like I, I'm now boom, bing, I've got to go turn around, flip that other pan, like how that works in your brain. And it goes into this like bigger story of like how like the structures of, of Las Vegas were built. And then it goes, it just goes in a thousand different directions. And it's so fascinating. Every single one of them, like, oh my god, I want to read more about this. I want to read more about this. I want to read more about this. Food's the starting point, but
0: that's one of my favorite genres of stories. The like, it's about X, but it's really about Y. Yeah, and I think food as a prism. I think is like I I think that's where we we're at. My take, like, this is why you're all tuning in is to know how I feel. No, um, is like the that right now because the baseline is so well trodden. Right. Mm-hmm. Like because there is so little left that's just like you learned how to fillet a fish in culinary school. Holy shit. Like the things that are super exciting right now are the stories that use food as a lens for how literally the rest of the world works. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah like yeah, yeah, we're going to yeah. start with the eggs, but we're going to talk about, you know. Right, neuroscience and we're going to talk about real estate and we're going to talk about the desert air and like drunkenness like it's going to be about actually it's about everything everyone Mm -hmm. knows
1: that chefs eat something called family meal and that they go out and party
0: after whatever right but like how can we use that to make a big point about like fragile masculinity in a macroeconomic (laughs) like you know
2: (laughs) no i think that's totally it i think you know and i think that's the layer that you know that's where things get that in in every pursuit right like that's where things get interesting when you start having oh it's about the Okay. It's about this, but really it's about that. I think that's a perfect way to put it. That's how I think about my cookbooks. You know, it's about taco recipes, but really it's about, you know, why don't we respect Mexican people? Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's about, it's about, you know, fried corn, but really it's about why is it that we think Appalachian people don't know what they're doing? Um, all modern like society. There are
0: like the secret <laughs> subtitles of the book. Yeah. It's like, why don't we yeah. respect the group that this culture is about? Yeah, yeah. Why don't we respect Tyler cord sandwiches?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's about sandwiches, but really it's about why Tyler has beef with the entire country of Peru. <laughs> um, apparently Tyler is like persona non grata in Peru because he once made a ceviche sandwich and talking about on camera there. And like, he's really hurt by it. Like people in Peru hate him.
0: <laughs> oh man. Poor Tyler.
2: Um, poor Tyler. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's about this, but really it's about that I think is is really the what you try to go for in like any and any person like in food, like literally in food, like oh, that pizza was supposed to be about the toppings, but really it was about the crust, you <laughs> know like, and that yeah. makes it exciting,
0: well, Francis, we um have arrived at the part of the podcast that we like to call the lightning round, which is about asking you questions but really it's about judging your answers yes
1: <laughs> um, so we ask everyone these questions to say the first thing that
0: pops in out of your head or in, into your head or into and out of yeah anyway the prepositional anyway relationships here yeah. really just very flexible through
2: just through <laughs> like don't even like take memori- your ego out of it
0: i had to memorize all of the prepositions in alphabetical order when i was in seventh grade a board about above across after against along among around at nobody else no, no.
2: crickets that's no, heavy. That was all cool, right. though. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't you know what the alphabet <laughs> order does for you, but I think the, that's the really impressive. The amazing mind
1: somehow held on to that. You know? uh, all I remember. Can is you the recite A's. the alphabet backwards? No.
0: I mean, yes, if I think about it. But I can. Okay. I can drop. So the... question number yeah. one: Can Let's you recite
1: this. the alphabet backwards? <laughs> no. Um, okay. So Francis, you are at an airport. You have an hour to kill. You have money in your wallet. What do you do? What's What's your game plan? Just one hour. Just yeah, one hour. Just one hour.
2: Man, if it's just one hour, I'm going to the fucking gate and I'm going to sit there and try to do some work. That's boring. Yeah, it is. does.
1: That's nice. good <laughs> Now, if it was,
2: like, three hours, uh-huh. then it really depends on the airport. But, like, really, the ultimate, the ultimate, okay, so if it's three hours or even two, then you, are like, start thinking, oh, is there somewhere where I can get, like, a decent bite to eat in the airport? And like, especially in American airports, it's, like, pretty tough. But, like, every once in a while you can find one now, and that's exciting. But if it's really, if you're, like, three hours, then it gets cool because you can do things, like, at the Atlanta airport, which is exit the airport and walk to where all the cabbies wait and all the cabbies in Atlanta are like are like West African and you can go find the place where they hang out and someone brings in lunch boxes like Senegalese lunch boxes and you can go get one and eat like jollof rice with the cabbies and then go back in and get your like Delta flight that's like inevitably delayed
0: That's a phenomenal hot tip. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Cool. So that's pretty strong, uh, Francis. What is um, one cookbook that you were not involved in the creation of that you wish you had been?
2: Um, this is like a weird one that, that every once in a while people ask me about, like, oh, some version of like this question, and I break out the Dean and Deluca cookbook.
0: Shut up! I'm obsessed with the Dean and Deluca cookbook. Are you
2: serious? I am. Uh, the Dean Deluca. I don't know why I have it. I really don't know why I have it, but I own it, and I've owned it for. 20 years and you like, I'll still flip through it for like ideas and the, everything I've made out of it is delicious.
0: It's a spectacular cookbook. It,
2: it's great. And it's like, and, and now I, re, I I have read it so differently over the years. Like at the time I was like, Oh my God, I don't know anything about these things. I don't know anything about like nice balsamic vinegar. Tell me more. I don't know anything about, um, like cherry tomatoes. <laughs> Tell me more. And now you read it and it's like, Oh, this, it's just like monumental. Um, it's this monumental, uh, achievement of, like, early 90s, proto-foodie, bourgeois, like, New York food culture.
0: (laughs) No, that's exactly what it is. But, like, it's, like, the recipes are really freaking good. It's so good. It's huge. It's like a doorstopper of
2: a cookbook. Yeah, and it's, like, it's before they, like, put pictures in cookbooks, you know? It's, like, it's just, like... Run in recipe after run in recipe, and 479 pages of them. Wow.
0: It, it is to the 90s, what the Silver Palette Cookbook is the 80s, I think. Like, it's it's a perfect document of like the emerging culinary vocabulary of that era. Totally. It's so spectacular. Oh my God, I love that answer. We have to like go bond over the you know, cookbook <laughs> now. <I'm laughs> so, moving
1: through the lightning round, I guess <laughs> like um, shut up about do this. You... <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I'm sold on it. Um, do you binge watch TV shows slash what was the last TV show you binge watched? Uh,
2: to be completely honest, uh, uh you know what? Broad City. I was gonna say like, there aren't really cause I don't. And then I know there's one, there's one and it's Broad City. Yeah, I just
1: blasted through that like a few months ago. Which I think is the greatest so thing
2: on television since The Wire. It was just a, a hoot.
0: I, I have a hard time with it cause it's too real. <laughs> it's a real New York
1: City show. I'll put it that way. Like, Especially when it's really hot and they're really talking about how gross it is and stuff. Yeah, I like, haven't felt that level of.
0: It, it sort of feels like a documentary of my life of ten years ago. Like it's <laughs> true. I feel the same Your way about life girls. Life is not that funny. What? How do you know? My life is great. Your
2: life is fantastic, but no one's <laughs> life is that funny. It's true.
0: But I feel like if you hybridize girls and Broad City and also like rewind it to two thousand three, it's like way too real for me, <laughs> and I can't handle it. And I have I'm to walk older away. than that. It's fine. But, <laughs> Francis, our last and final question is uh, if you could visit or resuscitate from the dead any restaurant that is now closed for one night only, what would it be?
2: You know, I, I, uh, I know the point of it is like the first thing that popped in my head and like the first thing that popped in my head is not actually the right answer, but it's like it, it's like close to the right answer. You know, I would... Uh, fuck, shit, fuck. Uh, say it, man, we'll, we'll, we'll talk it through with you. <laughs> no, because there are like real people involved in this one. I don't want to like hurt anyone's feelings. Um... It's a douchebag answer, but La Pyramide, which is Fernand Croix's restaurant in Lyon. That's oh, a fucking terrible answer. It's such a dickbag answer. I
1: think that's a good answer. <laughs> I didn't see it coming.
2: No, it's a good answer. I mean it in that I would love to know what that sort of high-end French cuisine was. Um, like really, at the place where everyone says that's where it came from. Is that like a French new a nouvelle? Uh- it, it was before nouvelle cuisine, and it was like it was like in between Escoffier and nouvelle cuisine. and Fernand Poin was like the first guy who like really made like the chef a sort of personality. Like for like Escafier was a personality that he was like, you know, the chef of kings and the king of chefs, which is like a, a you know. A,
0: Speaking of dick bags. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, you know, like
2: you've heard like nine chefs given that title, but like he yeah. was like the one. But Fernand Poin was, like, the first one who actually, like, in real life was, like, came out from the dining – like, out of the dining room into – came out from the kitchen the dining room and was, like, this larger-life figure. But, like, he, um, you know, took food out of the Escafier era and, like, primed it for Nouvelle Cuisine to then take it and to, like, make what, like, really what we think of as, like, modern chef food. Um, so that's, like – it's a dick bag answer because, it's, like, it's, it's pretty obscure to most people. I do have this kind of obsession with – high-end french cooking that sort of existed before i'd say the 90s before like you know jean george made it so like you want to put lemongrass in your french food <laughs> right. um just because i'm i don't know i think because of because i was sort of trained in it like i went to culinary school which in theory like the basis was french cooking it was like french technique and so like i have this sort of outsized respect and for it um so, yeah, I would love to go to something like the Pyramid or like an old, old version of like Le Côte Basque or La Caravelle or like one of these like grand French restaurants in New York City. Um, I'd love to see what that was like.
0: That's a great answer. I don't think that's the douchey answer at all.
2: Well, hey, Francis, this has been a,
1: a blast talking to you. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, if our listeners want to find you, where can they find you?
2: God, I hate to say it, but probably Twitter is the easiest place to find me. It's the best social network. where I live. Yeah. It is at Francis underscore Lamb. Francis is spelled with an I.
0: The boy way. The boy way. Yeah. For a long time, when I was just reading you in Gourmet and being a, a big fan, I definitely thought you were a woman, <laughs> which I don't know if I've ever told you before. Maybe no, that feels fine. But it, yeah, anyway. Francis, the I know, right. Francis Lamb, actually a man, here on The Eater Upsell. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Woo! We made it through that episode. Thanks to lots of people who will hit up in the credits, but especially thanks to MailChimp, the presenter of this episode. MailChimp, send better email, sell more stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morabito. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener, you. Thank you for being exactly who you are.